I'm David Zetland. Welcome to Drive Talking. It's Friday, the 8th of September, and this is David, and I'm joined by Cornelia, uh, my girlfriend, in our kitchen with the best acoustics ever. And we are doing the final episode of Drive Talking. This is officially called episode 250, but it's really the 248th episode, as in I have had 248 episodes of Drive Talking since it began but I was not very good at counting. So anyway, this is uh, 250, and we're uh, going to talk today about how Jive Talkie began, uh, how it went, uh, answer a few questions that some listeners have sent, and uh, talk about the lessons learned of the podcast and, and other questions that Cornelia might have. So Cornelia, take over. Yes, very exciting to... Uh... Uh, to do this podcast, of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. So uh, let's start with the beginnings. How did uh, Jive Talking uh, begin? Yeah. So um, long ago, I uh, started blogging and uh, in 2007. And then uh, I also uh, thought it would be nice to record some discussions with people uh, that are uh, longer, more nuanced. And so I did a series of what I called water chats. I did about... Th- 35 of those uh, back in the 2010-2013 period. Uh, Podcasting was a thing then, but I wasn't thinking about doing it uh, because the technicalities were too weird. Uh, Anyway, I did those water chats. I posted those on my blog. I don't even know how many people listened to them, but that was my first attempt. Then I was listening and listening and listening to podcasts, which I really enjoy. Um, And one of the ones that I've listened to the most is called Econ Talk. That's hosted by Russ Roberts. That's happened since I think 2007 or so. Uh, But as an example, that's uh, that plus many others I've listened to. And I was thinking, well, maybe what I want to do is I want to do some conversations with people again, just to kind of understand uh, what they uh, do or what they've brought the world or their insights, their point of view. So uh, I I started looking into doing uh, a podcast um, at the end of 2018. uh, And I uh, wanted to call it Jive Talking because uh, I think that's a funny name. Jive Talking is, of course, uh, for people as old as me, a song by the Bee Gees that was very famous in the 1970s. And it goes, Jive Talking. But um, I didn't want to pay uh, the performance uh, fee to use that song. So um, I also like the name Jive Talking because uh, there's a kind of a thing that also was in the 70s. It's like, are you talking jive? Are you basically are you talking bullshit? So uh, I'm very much in that uh, tradition. And so uh, that's how I got the name of the podcast. Uh, Russ Roberts uh, gave me actually a lot of advice on how to set up the, the podcast technicalities, which are super useful. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and I also didn't want to make the podcast uh, commercial. So I didn't want to have uh, advertising. I wanted to make it free. Um, and then the world would enjoy the wisdom of all of my guests. Hmm. So you already mentioned the inspiration from Econ Talk. Any other podcast that you uh, that inspired you or you got a lot of... Uh... Yeah, inspiration from? I, inspiration, not so much. I mean, I love listening to different podcasts. I, I, I call, I divide them into kind of two big categories. Uh, one of them is a scripted, edited kind of performance, like uh, um, Freakonomics podcast, for example, that whole uh, genre, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Revisionist History podcast. Uh, and then you get um, ones that are more just conver- conversations and then more casual. Uh, I... Um, I'm trying to think of, of who does that, who I actually listen to. I know, for example, Joe Rogan, who I definitely don't listen to, will go on for like two or three hours. Um, who's that other guy? The Irish, the Irish economist. Oh, yeah, no, the Irish economist is brilliant. Uh, David, uh, uh, what is his name? I'll look it up. He, he, uh, he that guy is so smart. So uh, he, I, I love his podcast, but he's got a great partner in his interviews. Um, and uh, him and John, uh, this is David McWilliams in Ireland. And... McWilliams is such a smart guy and he will start talking and he'll just go on tangent after tangent after tangent uh, just like I do and I love those podcasts so I think they have a script because he often writes a an article before they have a podcast uh, but I wanted to have an unscripted podcast um, mostly because I was going to be lazy I didn't want to uh, I don't do well with scripts uh, even today I'll be stumbling about uh, all these bullet points we're going to talk about and um, also I wanted it to be kind of flowing and most importantly I didn't want to edit uh, the podcast after because uh, that's just a huge amount of time that I didn't want to spend 
Okay. Should we um, move on to a discussion of the setup, the technical setup? The technicalities, yes. If you are going to start a podcast, keep these things in mind. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I got some equipment, again, on the recommendation of, of Russ. Uh, I got a recorder. It's called a Zoom as in Zoom teleconferencing, but the company is a Japanese company that was using the word Zoom before Zoom, uh, the uh, video uh, conferencing software. Anyway, it's an H4N, as in Nancy uh, Pro Recorder. Uh, I got a Shure uh, mic, uh, SM58, which is a classic mic for people that actually can perform um, or just want to talk. Uh, and then I have these little uh, lav mics that we're using right now, um, which are some Chinese knockoffs of proper net lav mics. But the, the total cost of all of this was uh, around 400 euros for the setup. Uh, there are many, many wires going around uh, my office when I'm uh, doing this on a, on a video call with people uh, via Zoom. Now we're talking about the video conferencing software or Skype or whatever. Um, but the, this recording is really high quality on my end, but on the speaker's end, <coughs> oof, I'm not going to edit that out. On the speaker's end, uh, it might be poor quality because, you know, just normal phone calls. Um, I used Adobe Audition as the software to uh, process and post. Uh, I use that because I have an academic discount. Instead of paying $300 or $500 a year for all of the Adobe suite, I pay $20. So that's a no-brainer. Um, and when I do uh, Adobe Audition, I uh, just add the music, the intro and the outro. Uh, that music I bought uh, for about $10, so I would avoid copyright issues. Uh, so there's the intro, the outro that I drop around the, the main conversation, um, and then I remove long pauses, and that's the entire processing. It takes me uh, about five minutes to process a one-hour uh, podcast ready to upload. And uh, those uploads are on SoundCloud, uh, and then that costs about $100, 100 euros a year. Um, and then SoundCloud uh, creates a RSS feed that can be used with any of these subscriptions, so Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Play. So I, had, I went and set up all those accounts so that people can listen to podcasts using their favorite um, app or, or interface or software. So that a whole bunch of setup time was involved with all this stuff. I learned a lot of stuff that I prefer not to learn. Um, the uh, other thing just to mention it, sometimes uh, post editing is really painful because uh, in the worst case scenario, I had one episode where uh, the person I was interviewing was constantly being interrupted by children and deliveries. It was like 15 interruptions in an hour. So that was totally annoying. It took me forever to edit that. Um, so sometimes there's, uh, the other thing that I have had to edit for is to remove corporate secrets uh, because the person who's speaking to me at some point realizes that maybe uh, somebody paranoid in their company is gonna get mad at them. So I had to wait for approvals, which um, mostly came through. Uh, and, um, yeah, so as I said earlier, I don't usually use a script, uh, but the only thing I, I do script, I have a series of questions that I use for the uh, alumni stories uh, for LUC alumni, and, and that script, or those series of questions has been very helpful. Speaking of deliveries, pause. And we're back, okay. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> edit out inspira uh, interruptions. So, that's that. Um, so you mentioned um, yeah the setup. Let's maybe move on to some uh, statistics and the impact. How many people are listening to yeah. to the to the podcast? Yeah. So um, I had an experience with my blog um, that was growing in 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 readership. I had a newsletter that was growing in readership uh, and visiting and the visitors of the blog. So my algonomics blog was that I started in 2008. And I ran that for 10 years, so I, I finished that before I started this podcast. And when I was when I finished Agronomics, I, I stopped posting and I kept the URL. And then I just watched the statistics for visitors. And there were hundreds, sometimes thousands of visitors per day to a blog that was not doing anything. And um, there were some people that were attracted by Google searches for uh uh, the most common one that was uh, that was funny was sex in the water because agronomics is about water. So people would say sex, water, and then somehow they would get to my blog, which was not about sex in the water. But um, anyway, I had lots and lots of hits with no content, and that made me very skeptical about these statistics about visitors. Um, likewise, if you start watching a video on YouTube and you watch it for two seconds and then stop watching it, that records one watch. Um, 
they're this don't even get into the the impressions on LinkedIn and Facebook and followers and friends. So a lot of the metrics were were garbage, and so I decided to not follow any of those metrics um, when I was doing this podcast because uh, it gives you this kind of false sense of impact when you should not have that uh, false sense of impact. So. Um, now, and that meant that I was doing this podcast, uh, I wasn't gonna kind of track its success. My measure of success, which again, dates back from when I was blogging, is that um, I better do it to please myself because if I'm gonna try and to do it for an audience or I'm gonna try and do it to please somebody else or get famous, then I'm gonna be disappointed continuously. And I've gone through that multiple times. So. Um, low expectations were actually very wise. Uh, there were, in these uh, roughly 250 episodes, there were 39,000 plays, which averages out to 160 plays per episode. Um, the highest plays on one episode, the fourth episode, this is a good example of, of expectations, the fourth episode I put out, there were 1,200 plays, so roughly 10 times more than you would expect uh, now that I look back. Uh, and I was like, wow, this is great. I'm getting this massive audience. It's so exciting. Uh, that episode, uh, that podcast was about the Me Too uh, in economics with a, 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 a friend of mine. Uh, she's, a, she's an economist. Anyway, 1,200, the next, and then episode after that, it was like 100. And so that was really obvious that I had one so-called viral thing. That, and that was literally the only one out of 250. Um, and because I don't do any marketing on social media, uh, the, the reach of these podcasts depends on the guests, social media networks. But uh, to use uh, Russ Robert as an example, um, who is his Econ Talk podcast gets like 10,000 downloads a week or something like that. Uh, he had 300 uh, plays when he came to my podcast. So, and he put it on Twitter or all these places and, and you know, just people, they don't necessarily leave their, their sandbox to go find something new. And even when they did find something new, they didn't necessarily stay subscribed to my podcast. So this was a real challenge uh, if I thought it was interesting and I didn't, so I just let it, let it go. Uh, engagement on podcasts is even worse than engagement on blog blog posts and engagement on blog posts has fallen off of a cliff since uh, social media has destroyed actual conversations and turned people into interesting uh, ranchers and ravers. Uh, there were seven comments on 250 episodes. So you could tell that, you know, this is just not even going anywhere. And more than half of those comments are probably me replying to other people. So not a big uh, success in terms of engagement. Uh, these are podcasts. People listen to them. Uh, they finish. They go on to the next thing. They don't think, oh, I need to have a conversation. I need to reach out. Um, I want to talk to that guest. Who knows? Um, I Yeah, speaking of guests, uh, I'm, I'm not sure about how the podcast impacted any of them. Um, I asked uh, uh, them when I announced the end of Jive Talking. Uh, I received like one comment, which is that someone said, oh, I started to work with someone said that they got somebody to apply to work with them because they had heard the podcast. So maybe there was a job uh, a recruitment here and there. But anyway, uh, the statistics are, are, are kind of boring because um, they don't measure the real value of the podcast. And the value to me was very clear to the value to my guests, I, I think was very clear. And hopefully the value to you listeners was, was worth, uh, yeah, worth your time. Mm. Should we uh, go to the AMA questions? Sure. Ask me anything. So we have a couple of questions. First one from Jeremy from Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, he asks, why do governments continue to subsidize agriculture? This is a good question. It's a very uh, important one. Uh, agriculture is a for-profit business, uh, just like oil and gas, just like manufacturing cars, just like making clothes and shoes. And we don't subsidize making clothes and shoes. We indirectly subsidize making cars. Anyway, agriculture gets a pretty heavy subsidy right off the bat. And that subsidy is so huge in many cases, uh, the US as an example, that farmers will grow a crop because of the subsidy, not because of the ecology, not because of the marketplace, not because that's what they like to grow. They grow it because of the subsidy. So it completely distorts behavior. Uh, this is a really, either good or bad reason for the government subsidy. Um, I think some governments really like to subsidize and get that output because they want, for example, a lot of wheat or a lot of corn. Um, they might say it's for food security. Quite often, those subsidies uh, from the government are, um, are the result of lobbying efforts from 
the buyers of that product. So uh, if you are a producer of corn syrup, uh, then you want the government to subsidize the production of corn because then the cost of your input is lower and that helps you sell more of your product or make a higher profit. So the very straight answer of why they subsidize agriculture, one of them is uh, that industry or, or various groups benefit from whatever that cheap uh, product will be. Because if government subsidizes some agriculture, they're not subsidizing other agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, then you get sub- governments that subsidize agriculture in general, and this uh, can be through many means. Um, if it is completely undirected, and they basically say, you have land, here's some money, uh, then technically uh, the, the government is, is um, uh, really not putting a, their thumb on the scale in terms of a particular crop. But they are saying you should definitely farm on this piece of land. And if you don't farm on the land, do you get the subsidy? And if the answer is no, then you're going to have more intensive farming. So mm. if the answer is yes, then you might you have someone who just owns a piece of land, doesn't do anything, and they get a subsidy and people get upset, voters mm. get upset. So typically, I think the uh, food security argument gets used for, yeah. for, for defending subsidies. So how do, you, how do you get around that? Yeah, food security is an, uh, for subsidies is a really uh, kind of... A stupid one. Uh, so if you want to have food security, then you go to people who are food insecure and you give them money to buy food. So uh, uh, the the worst cases of this are on international aid. So I'll discuss that in a second. But uh, uh, let me get to the most common case in a place like uh, California, where the subsidy for growing uh, food uh, is through, for example, uh, the provision of very cheap water. And that subsidy is extremely valuable and it's an indirect, it's not a cash subsidy, it's access to water at a, uh, it, through a government process, not through a market process. And the farmers are very happy to get that water, they pay almost nothing for it, so they grow whatever's profitable. And let's take the case of almonds. And you grow almonds in California, which is the number one producer in the world, and then you export 80, 90% of your crop outside of California. So people of California are giving the water of California to the farmers who send the crop outside of California to people who want almonds, uh, hipsters obviously with their almond smash avocado toast. Uh, and, um, and, and the farmers make a profit. People of California have less water, their ecosystems are damaged. So that kind of subsidy is radically bad for the local population. And you can go through another example. In the Netherlands, they subsidize agriculture and particularly uh, animal agriculture subsidizing it by allowing those farmers to get away with a lot of pollution, which is illegal, um, or uh, it's illegal, but then they have exceptions. So they make an exception for an illegal thing. That's And it's also true in, in many countries, water pollution regulation, you're not allowed to pollute the water, but if you're a farmer, you're allowed to pollute the water. So that's a, a massive uh, subsidy uh, by reducing their cost of doing their business. So there's all these things happening. Now, when you look at international aid, which is one of the silliest things, you've got a place that's having a famine and um, they used to have, uh, many countries would send food to help the starving poor people and they would have a budget of say $10 million and the law would say, you can spend 10 million American dollars on subsidizing food to help some starving people, but you have to buy American food and put it on an American ship and bring it overseas and distribute it to those people uh, with all of the labeling saying, the people of America have given you American food and because we're Americans, we're amazing. The thing is, is that that $10 million would buy, let's say, 100 units of food. And if the $10 million went to the local marketplace in those countries and they bought the food directly, not from American farmers, but from local farmers, then instead of getting 100 units of food, they get more like 500 units of food, like literally five times as much. some aid agencies realized this was a problem and they ended up doing that. They ended up having a policy of using food uh, emergency uh, starvation money to help local people by buying in local markets. But some uh, rich countries uh, say they're helping those poor starving people, but they're actually subsidizing their uh, farmers' exports, which is, um, yeah, probably not the best way to help starving people. Hmm. Okay, let's maybe move on to the next question uh, from Spencer from California. Oh, so one last thing about subsidizing. The other thing about subsidizing subsidizing agriculture is it falls in this category of uh, the the small uh, taking advantage of the the large. So a small group taking advantage of the large group. This is Manker Olson from the 1960s. That's also called special interest lobbying. And when you have, for example, in the United States, a thousand or two thousand sugar farmers um, who are getting trade protection from cheaper sugar from uh, Brazil or especially from Cuba, then those thousand or two thousand farmers make extreme excess profits of a million, two million dollars a year. The cost of that two million dollars per farmer 
uh, extra revenue is borne by 300 million plus Americans. So Americans pay uh, three to five dollars extra per year for sugar, which is not worth fighting over. And those sugar farmers receive a million or two million dollars a year, which is absolutely worth fighting over. So that's why you have lobbyists who are from these special interest groups that are keep winning over and over again to get more and more subsidies that are paid for by the rest of the population that doesn't have the uh, ability to organize in terms of a, a collective action and oppose that subsidy. Mm, okay, let's uh, let's move on to the next question. Sure, let's. Yes. So Spencer from California, uh, uh, let me read out the question, it's quite long. Uh, one of democracy's pitfalls uh, is the tendency of the majority to oppress the minority. What are your thoughts on uh, EU's group of friends on qualified majority voting? Uh, the objective of the group of friends is to improve effectiveness and speed of our foreign policy decision making. Are there second or third order effects which can be predicted given the history of democracy? Yeah, so the, the first sentence, uh, how to protect the minority against the majority in a democracy, um, uh, and if you have the majority taking advantage of the minority or trying to persecute the mi mi minority, even though they just had a democratic election, then that's called majoritarianism. Um, and the traditional solution to major majoritarianism is to give everybody a basic set of rights, uh, and that would be called, you know, in the U.S., the Bill of Rights, uh, uh, or minority rights, or whatever that is. And the idea there is that even if there is a majority of 51% or 90%, that they cannot take away some rights from people just because they want to. Um, and uh, so the then what that means is that the the majority can make decisions, uh, but they cannot uh, use those decisions to punish the minority. Uh, unfortunately, there are uh, many uh, so-called democracies uh, in the world, um, not so much the, the US, certainly not the Netherlands, um, but maybe in India or Bangladesh, uh, where you have a democratic vote, and then the winner says, uh, because I'm the winner, I get to uh, go after the losers um, and uh, persecute them. Um, and this is, is not uh, good. Now, the qualified majority voting in the EU, uh, I believe, and this is, I'm not an expert, but I'm just going to go off of uh, what I think I, I understand of the question, is when you have the member states, of which there are uh, 27 or 28 member states, I forget right now, and um, they have a qualified majority, uh, which either is going to be one state, one vote, or one state has more votes uh, because of its population, for example. And uh, when you have a qualified majority, that means that uh, they use that word qualified uh, just to say it's above, it's not 51%, it might be uh, six out of 10, it might be uh, two thirds, who knows. But the idea is that it's, it's a, a big enough majority uh, on a particular set of issues where this is allowed to happen. And this is being offered up as an alternative, in my opinion, to a unanimity rule, meaning that all 27 or 28 states have to agree on the decision. And what has happened in the EU, not surprisingly, um, is that uh, one state, one member state, can block uh, a decision that the other uh, 27 states want to take because of the unanimity rule. And uh, in recent years, that's been uh, Poland, not so much since the Ukraine war started or got into phase two, uh, Hungary very much all the time, um, and you know, choose your state. But those two are, have been the biggest uh, users of this veto. And uh, when, they, when the veto is, uh, we veto sanctions against Russia, which is, I think, what Hungary was trying to do until, uh, uh, sorry, energy uh, sanctions. Hungary did this until the EU said, we will give an exemption from uh, oil coming to Hungary from Russia, and then Hungary reduced, removed its veto. Um, well, Hungary is also remarketing that oil to other countries for a profit for itself, and of course helping the Russians uh, have money to continue the war. So this is not popular in the EU because uh, unanimity uh, only matters when everybody is uh, playing by the rules. When you have a spoiler who is not following the rules, then you have to worry about uh, allowing that spoiler to veto decisions. So they come up with this idea of a qualified majority, which more or less means uh, people who are nice can uh, outvote people who are not nice to do things that nice people want to happen. 
That sounds like a very reasonable policy that the EU should adopt. Well, they, they are they are adopting it. And, and uh, the tricky part, of course, is, and I don't know how this process has worked, but when you have a uh, unanimity rule, then typically you need to get a unanimous vote to bypass the unanimity rule in terms of a structure. So uh, I would assume that somehow they did that, which means that Hungary voted to give away some of its power, which sounds uh, unlikely, uh, or they just created some new mechanism to try and sidestep that uh, breach of the unanimity rule. Um, but this is a common kind of issue in, in any kind of constitution that changing the constitution requires that everybody uh, who's affected by that change agrees to that change, and frequently that's not true. Uh, or even worse, they say, uh, we'll let you have a change which has no impact on us, but we want you to pay us a bribe because we can block you just because we feel like it. So you get some really bad behavior when you're trying to change uh, rules um, that are not necessarily working. So I think that uh, brings us to the last uh, section to discuss the lessons learned. Lessons learned. Yes. Any? I'm in any, school uh, all the time yes. learning. Tell um, us. Right. So. Um, I, I wrote down some points here, so I'll just I'll say this. So, the when you put out a podcast or a blog post or a, you write an academic paper and you want people to read it, you have an audience or a book. I give away my book. I give away the podcast. I give away the 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 um, uh, the blog. Uh, just because it's free doesn't mean people are going to read it or listen to it or whatever. And uh, so then you have to find a way of getting their attention because most people have they don't have a shortage of money. They have a shortage of time. Um, and uh, uh, so that's, and this is actually, let me just speak to that for a second. There's many, many publishers who make money on subscriptions. So it could be the New York Times, it could be National Geographic, it could be uh, uh, a, a podcast or, or people that buy books. And the people that are publishing these, these uh, sources of information may be making profits even though those books are not being read, those podcasts are not being listened to. Uh, and so there's, there can be a real issue with the creator of the content and the publisher of the content being two separate parties. One cares about the revenue from the subscription, the other one cares about having readers and having impact. So I'm the publisher and the creator of this podcast and I'm giving it away for free for uh, reasons that I already said. And uh, uh, so I'm, I want the biggest audience possible, but that's hard. I think um, social media has destroyed uh, a lot of small-scale um, uh, content creators, uh, and that's because uh, and people are always trying to go viral, taking classes on going viral. Uh, there's influencers and all this stuff, and even worse, when people are on a, an app like TikTok or on Instagram, they're in an app that does not connect to the internet. They're being fed content, uh, and I always use the expression of a fed as in a feeding tube shoved, shoved down your throat and they just put whatever they want in the tube and that's what you what you have. So they're being fed content that is um, created by somebody, that's why it's called social media, but it is uh, delivered in a way that maximizes profits to that platform. So it might be to maximize attention or engagement, might be to maximize virility, um, but it's not necessarily to maximize uh, good ideas uh, or uh, uh, good outcomes for the people that are consuming the content. So there's a real challenge there. I'm not interested in that challenge uh, and I've written a lot about how that challenge is bad for society and us, us as individuals. Uh, so I just kind of, at, a, at, a, at, at the start, I took on that the podcast would have a limited audience and I was right. So I confirmed that that was difficult. Um, now what I was a little bit surprised about um, is how hard it was to get guests. And, and that's because I love talking, uh, clearly, um, but other people are a lot more shy. And if you say, hey, you published a book that you just worked for three years on, you wanna talk, you wanna talk about it on my show, people are like, ah, I don't know. So it's, or worse, I don't want to come on your podcast because I don't wanna spend an hour when you have 160 listeners. I want to spend my hour, you know, trying to get published somewhere in the New York Times or get on the Freakonomics podcast. So I can see that there's a, a problem of shyness, but there's also a problem of, you know, what's in it for me from the guests and, you know, what's in it for me as the host is this conversation and I always pitch it to the guests, it's, this is good for you. And many, many, many guests say, wow, that was better than I thought or that was fun or that was surprisingly fun. Uh, at least half of my guests have never been on podcasts at all. So that's kind of uh, nice, refreshing for, for them and for me, but also nice for them to kind of get a feel in a, in a, in a low pressure environment. Um, so that, that was 
you know, that, that met my mission. But in the end, I wanted to, I wanted to end the podcast because I just got tired of chasing people around uh, to try and, you know, get them to talk about themselves, which to me was shocking. Uh, it's, it's hard to get people to talk about themselves. Um, but, you know, apparently they're, they're so busy taking selfies or whatever that is, posting on Instagram, Instagram that they're uh, okay with that. Um, in, in the conversations, I, I often did zero research in, in the tradition of jive talking, of, of keeping it casual. Uh, I didn't read the book, I didn't read the paper, I didn't listen to whatever. Uh, sometimes I didn't know anything about the person except maybe their name. Uh, and uh, then we had a conversation. So I always learn something in these, uh, in the, in these episodes. Uh, sometimes I learn things that were like really like changed my life. Uh, and sometimes I learn stuff which was scary. Um, Sometimes I learned stuff that was scary about the, the my guests, which was more scary. Uh, and uh, but there was there was always something there. And it's it's funny because if you just sit on the plane uh, back in the day, you'd sit on a plane and talk to somebody for an hour or two, or sit on the train or sit on the bus next to somebody, and you'd meet strangers and you'd have conversations. And I kind of use this podcast to create that environment because that environment has gone away uh, for a lot of people. Uh, I'm not even going to get started on people that are commuting in their car with no one to talk to. Uh, although I guess sometimes they talk to each other on the phone while they're doing their hands-free driving. But I think it's we don't do enough conversations with people. And um, in this podcast, of course, I was doing that every week for for four years. Uh, and it, the conversations were different because they were on, uh, they were taped, they were being taped so p- other people can listen. So they weren't, you know, private. Uh, we, we, we had, me and my guests had lots of side conversations when it wasn't being recorded. Those were also very insightful. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, I, I fed that need to have conversations with strangers or, or people that I knew, but about things that we hadn't talked about. And, and that was nice. Uh, but I, and I will continue to do that because there's lots of humans on the planet that you can talk to. I just won't be recording that. Mm. Um, and and you said um, there were some conversations that changed your life. That's yeah, quite, that's quite strong. What's yeah. an example? Yeah, I know. I was going to say, oh, I don't can't give you an example of that. Uh, so um, I think the uh, let me think here. It's it's hard to say. So okay, so so. Change my life is a little bit strong. Change my mind is useful. So, for example, when when Tisa and I were having an argument, which is what Tisa and I do, about the impact of climate change on security and sea level rise, um, I was arguing with him. He was saying like the Netherlands can handle sea level rise because it's a you know engineering forward culture, and I was saying they can't ha- handle sea level rise because it's going to bring chaos into the environment. And so we were trying to convince each other to to take this on board, but. Uh, I didn't change my mind and probably Tease didn't change his mind, but it, it is useful to, to see how some people, uh, and, and I'm not you know, uh, 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 singling out Tease on this at all, but some people, they, they, they think about things on one dimension and I'm thinking about things on a different dimension. And it's important to be able to reconcile those two different dimensions. Uh, there was another one that was just like, it changed my mind, it kind of blew my mind. And that was uh, when I was talking to, to James Eves about, uh, uh, yeah, the first uh, Tease was Tease Reichen. Uh, oh, and sorry, while I'm on, on naming names, the all of the shows are still available on SoundCloud and you can look at them chronologically and on playlists. But uh, I have a master list of all the shows. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes on my website. That's the, also the archive of uh, this podcast. So this that this will persist after the SoundCloud subscription disappears and all those podcasts disappear. That uh, listing on my website, you can sort by guests. So if you want to find a particular guest, you can do that. You can also search by topic and stuff like that. Anyway, James Eves was, uh, or James, if you search short by alphabetically by host, uh, guest name, he was doing talking to me, telling me about uh, indoor farming, and I really learned a lot about how indoor farming is better than uh, farming in in a greenhouse with glass roof and sides. because as James explained, which is pretty obvious when you think about it, it's really hard to temperature control a, a greenhouse mm. because it gets cold at night because the sun goes down, it gets hot through the day because the sun comes up. And he said, you actually spend more energy trying to control the temperature in a greenhouse than you would putting the whole thing under a roof and not even using the sun. So it's actually better to put solar panels on the roof of your uh, covered indoor farm and use that electricity to run the lights inside on a much more reliable basis than fight with the clouds and the sun and the weather and the rain and all that stuff. So that I thought that was quite interesting. But I mean, overall, I think that the, the podcast kind of uh, changed my life in a positive way in terms of just sitting back and letting people talk more. I 
talk a lot. Uh, I don't think anybody who knows me is surprised about that. But I do like the opportunity to just shut up and let someone else talk about what they about themselves or what they know or what they're working on. Mm-hmm. Any anything you would have done different differently? Um, running the podcast? No, I, I I think I mean the the frequency of every week I think is very important. Uh, the length of one hour I thought was very handy. I had a couple half-hour episodes for people that were in a hurry. Uh, the unscripted element is really handy. I don't think I would have gained a lot by you know, reading in advance and studying up on this person because one of the things that I, uh, one of the reasons I did that besides me trying to save time was uh, to give the readers the same kind of um, uh, opening point, beginning point, starting point in the conversation as me. So if someone came on and they were had written a book and I had read the book, then the reader, the, the listener is like, I haven't read this book. Uh, you know, why are you guys talking about this weird thing in chapter 12? So I kind of like to approach it naively and then ask questions that anybody could ask who hadn't read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I... Yeah, there's no, nothing else I can think of. I mean, I got approached occasionally by people saying, we want to syndicate your podcast or promote it or whatever. Like almost always that was garbage. So yeah, I can't think of anything else. I guess the only thing I would say if I wanted to do something differently, I would have started podcasting in 2007 uh, when there was when social media was much weaker, when Russ Roberts was on episode four. Uh, then I could have competed head to head because in the end, you know, you have these podcasts that are kind of this uh, winner takes all. And once you get momentum, you know, you get more and more and more listeners. And then the, you know, the smaller podcasts like mine can't get more listeners because people's time is taken up by those big podcasts, those heavily syndicated podcasts that are actually, in many cases, extremely well produced, uh, high quality professional, like a lot, of, a lot of resources goes into everyone. So I can't be jealous. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to compete with uh, Freakonomics. Um, but it, it did make it really hard to... Yeah, I think, let's say this way, diversify the voices. This is so cliche, but diversify the voices that are out there kind of talking about uh, topics. Uh, I think I don't think podcasts are really highly concentrated the way that, for example, uh, you know, TV news programs are concentrated Uh, and everybody can switch to any other podcast they want to. So it's a very competitive market. um, And I can't, as an economist at all, complain about, uh, you know, losing out on a competition. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it would be gratifying to have more people listening because I think we had a lot of episodes that were. Uh, yeah, a total waste of time for most listeners, but a lot of episodes that were really great and mm. I thought insightful. And I guess the one audience that I care, care the most about that I think I've had pretty good success on is LUC students, so uh, Lighting University College students, because I wanted them to listen to the alumni stories, mm-hmm. uh, of which there's f- more than 40 episodes, because they're very, very insecure about how they will do in their life after they leave LUC. And those alumni coming on to a person was doing great. And they were doing great in all kinds of crazy, unexpected, I can't believe you're saying this ways, which was, which was the fun of the discussions. Um, but they were doing great. And I, I think that lesson, I could tell students that they won't believe me. Um, I could document it with data, they won't believe me. But if you can listen to a podcast where someone who sounds a lot like you is saying, yeah, things are okay and grades don't matter that much and you know this didn't work for me, but this really did work for me. I think that's healthy for those students to hear that and try to you know, uh, be easier on themselves mm. about success. So you mentioned um, uh, everyone's getting into the podcasting uh, space the last few years and you oh, wish yeah. you were earlier to the game. So yeah. what do you think is going to happen in this space in the next few years? Uh, I think it's going to be tricky because um, people, the majority of people's attention, uh, so let's try and break the world into pieces. So you've got um, more and more internet that is cheaper and cheaper to get. Uh, and you've got uh, a bunch of people competing for attention that have business models that are based on attention. So um, social media websites that uh, are serving content uh, based on an attention model 
are doing that because they're serving up advertising. And so people get to listen to this podcast for free or watch TikTok videos for free or go on social media, Facebook, Instagram for free. And they go there for free because they are the product. That's the cliche. And what they're being sold is they are being sold to the advertisers. And the advertisers are selling, you know, facial cream, uh, the newest running shoes, uh, vacations and wherever the fuck. And so, um, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, manipulating voters and elections. And there's all kinds of things that are being, that their data are being sold for. Uh, and uh, that's a very difficult dynamic to compete with because the creators of those apps, those websites, whatever that is, uh, they have an incentive to make it as ad- addictive as possible. And we've uh, I've talked about this endlessly, like how all the consultants from the gambling industry and the addiction industry have been working in social media. They want to make it as ad- addictive as possible so they can make as much money as possible. And the people that are on these uh, platforms, you know, getting fed this content, they are enjoying it as much as possible because they're essentially getting these, you know, these these hits, these endorphin hits all the time. Uh, and if you don't pull down to refresh, then you feel like you're losing something. And over and over and over again, it's quite pathetic, actually, because uh, people are kind of, you know, like hamsters that are just kind of behaving in this in this way. And, but it's very addictive, uh, and that world is is growing in, or sorry, that 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 kind of. Uh, business model is growing in size as more people get connected to the internet. As unfortunately, children get connected to the internet. Uh, it used to be that you know you would live at home. This is when I was growing up. The phone would ring. The phone is attached to the wall with a wire. The phone is shared by everybody. Get off the phone. I need to talk to your mom. Get off the phone. You know I want to use the internet, so I have to connect the modem. So phones were like really a, a phone time is a precious resource. And there wasn't very much phone time, so people found other things to do. They would, uh, I don't know, read a book, obviously watch TV. There were already there were there were four channels, etc. But now that people are on internet-connected mobile phones, that they each has their own personal device, people can spend all day, every day, all year, all the time, looking at their little device in their hand. And the and you know it's this uh, cliche from from Snow White, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most beautiful person of all? It's me, I'm looking at my phone, my phone's telling me I'm beautiful. And that creates, number one, the problem of the, of the psychology of the social media. Number two, a complete narcissism as far as um, how the world works because everything is, is customized to make you feel good. And then number four, uh, three, the, the worst thing I think of all is a lack of engagement with people around you. And as I said before, you know, people would talk to each other on the, on the plane or on the train or whatever, and, and that's been broken for 20 years. And I, I think it's bad because because when people are looking at the world through customized lenses and they run into somebody else who's looking through the world in customized lenses, these people will often not agree at all. And they don't stop and work it out and figure out why they don't agree. They say, oh, I hate you and I hate you also, and they go back to their feeds. So it's, I think it's really, really uh, bad from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not exactly your question. What was your question again? Well, it was more about the evolution of the whole sector. Huh? Yeah. If, if, if it's, so if where's it's it going? winner takes all, yeah. then what's the incentive or what's the reason for um, for a smaller podcast, basically. Yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No. The, the, so to continue with what I was ranting on about that force, that tendency that I'm talking about is going to get worse and worse. So, uh, and I, my opinion about the future of humanity is that it's going to be like the Matrix. People are just going to plug in their brain. Uh, 24/7. Actually, you know, they're going to have a a, a food drip and a pee. And a, and a waste dump, and they're just going to consume content that is beautiful in front of their eyes. Mm. Uh, so that's where there it's going to go. There is one upside to that, of course, that we could maybe solve climate change if, if uh, we. Uh, that's right. If we, if we that, plug ourselves. That in that that won't solve climate change because that doesn't mean people won't continue to to burn fossil fuels and cut down rainforests. Uh, that will. Uh, help people ignore the problems of climate change, which I, I think will be very attractive. The same as mm. um, in Brave New World, where they said, just take a soma, um, just take a, a, a pill, basically, mm. uh, to make yourself happy. And I think that's going to happen. Now, uh, other people are going to rebel against that. Um, uh, and they're going to say, uh, I don't want to be uh, on a feed. I want to uh, control my own destiny. I want to go find people who don't agree with me. And uh, understand that, discuss that with them, uh, and you know, understand the vibrancy of, of, of the human experience. That takes some uh, guts because you have to be willing to uh, be wrong. 
You have to be willing to listen to other people. Uh, you have to be willing to uh, sometimes, you know, uh, be in the minority. Um, you have to go work to take time to find that person. Um, and it's it's not just pure addiction all the time. Uh, you know, eat your vegetables uh, because they're good for you is is going to happen for a certain number of people. But a huge, huge majority of people are going to take the easy way uh, out. Uh, I have nothing to say about that. That's basic human psychology. I think it's a, a real tragedy for those people because um, there's a lot of psychology around um, the happiness that you get from making an effort to accomplish something that may not be easy, that you might fail at. And when everything is given to you all the time, uh, that kind of, yeah, I mean, in the most basic sense, your, your body at some point says, well, I don't have to do any work. I'm just going to shut down. Um, and so, and your brain will shut down. Um, and I, to be honest, I see this with my father who watches television all the time. And television is, is a very passive form of, of entertainment. And your brain doesn't need to take care of itself. Uh, so my, bother, my father has, you know, uh, uh, more and more problems with his memory and, and thinking and all that stuff because his brain is basically decaying because it's not in use. Um, and, you know, he's quite old, but uh, there's no reason why that same dynamic is not happening with a 12-year-old on TikTok. Uh, so I don't want to be that 12-year-old. I don't want to um, be in a world with 12-year-olds like that. When I run into one of those 12-year-olds or the 20-year-olds or the 30-year-olds, then the conversation is, is shallow and... Um, useless often because they don't have any original thoughts they haven't I mean it's really kind of annoying uh, annoying in the sense of um, you're looking at someone who is who is yeah I don't know could be so much more interesting I guess mm. uh, and to use a, a, a kind of a, a Dutch American example uh, you know the average and we're in Amsterdam which is not the typical for the Netherlands but um, you know the if you look at the obesity rates uh, of the Dutch um, it's lower than the Americans. Let's just say it like that. Uh, and so you walk out on the street and the average person in this country is uh, thinner than the average person in the United States. And, and if you just switch countries and you walk around, it's like people are doing their things. They're walking around. They're just bigger. They need bigger cars, bigger seats, big gulps, whatever that is. And you don't, if you're in the Netherlands, you don't necessarily notice. When you're, you're in the U.S., you don't necessarily notice. But when you switch, you notice it. And I think um, if you switch from a world where people are on social media all the time to a world where they're not because there's a power outage or you're on a retreat or whatever. It's a radically different uh, 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 way of interacting with each other that almost everybody agrees is better, but as soon as the first person who picks up their phone causes this wave of defections, so the next person picks up their phone, a phone, a phone, a phone. And so, you know, you get these, um, my, my, my least favorite example or the one that I hate is like a, a table full of people at a restaurant five or six friends, they're all looking at their phone. Mm. They're not even talking to each other. And I literally, I'm like, why are you even at the restaurant? You can mm. sit at home and have a TV dinner. And you know, why, you, so I think it's a loss. Uh, and, and that's problematic because as uh, throughout life, it's nice to have friends. Throughout life, it's nice to learn things. Um, but when it comes to things like challenges, like climate change or Ukraine getting invaded or whatever, you want to have people having, you know, critical conversations about what to do or what's going on. Mm. And if they're just not doing that because they can't be bothered because they're on social media, then a lot of problems in the world are, are not going to get addressed. And that means they're going to get worse. Mm. Okay, I have two final questions. Sure. So uh, this is, I think, technically the 249th episode. No, this is 248. I counted, included this one. Okay, well, so if it was 249th and then you had one episode left to get to 250. Fine. Who would be, uh, who would be your uh, dream... Um, uh, guest living or dead well you can do one living one dead okay um, Wow so uh, let me think of living first so I think uh, well actually dead is easier uh, Eleanor Ostrom mm. uh, Eleanor Ostrom is probably one of the most um, impactful people I've ever run across I actually did meet her uh, like literally I can say I shook her hand like like you know I'm such, such a groupie uh, but Eleanor Ostrom um, is my intellectual uh, godmother because she did her PhD on water in California, Southern California, groundwater. I did surface water in Southern California. Uh, uh, she was, I mean, her story is crazy. She was denied admission to UCLA in economics because she was a woman in the 1960s. She did her PhD in the political science department. Uh, and then uh, with her husband, who was uh, also at UCLA, uh, so this was a little bit of a professor marrying the graduate student story, uh, but they, they did stay married until the day they died, so you can't say that uh, didn't work out. Uh, Vincent Ostrom, they ended up starting the um, 
Oh, what did they even call it? They, they called it the workshop uh, in Indiana, in, in Bloomington, Indiana. And and then um, Aust- uh, Eleanor, and so Vincent was like, also, he did some very high quality work. He actually wrote the first thing on uh, Los Angeles water management that I ended up using, the, the oldest citation I used in my dissertation uh, that was contemporary to my, my discussion. Anyway, they, uh, so... In the 60s, this uh, uh, article, the, the, the Tragedy of the Commons came out from Garrett Harding in 1968. And it basically said, if there's a commons, there's going to be a tragedy. This kind of asserted there's going to be a tragedy. Uh, and um, uh, people always have this ana- an analogy of, of sheep on uh, a meadow and every herder adding their own sheep to the meadow, uh, getting a private benefit, but causing a, a, a cost to everybody else. Uh, and therefore, the selfish impact of every individual's choices led to a tragedy of the commons. That's the analogy that people think was in the article, and that actually wasn't in the article. Uh, the tragedy that he was talking about was the human population, which is like humans on the planet, uh, eating up the planetary resources. And to a great degree, he was right about that. Uh, and even at the scale he was talking about, which was the planet. But Eleanor Ostrom was uh, annoyed, I think correctly, about the sheep uh, idea because uh, there are many, many, many examples of commons where there's common grazing for livestock, there's common uh, harvest of, of trees from a collective forest, there's common management of water, which she had done her PhD on, where those commons are not in a tragedy. Um, so they're, what, in her words, not in a dilemma, they're in a situation. Um, and she pushed on that and she worked her whole life until uh, you know she died in, I think, 2014 and Vincent died they died within a month of each other, basically. Um, and she worked her whole life on that, got the, the first, I believe, Nobel Prize in economics as a woman, which was, a, 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 number one, a, a great threshold, and number two, a pretty big fuck you to the economics profession for denying her um, entrance. Uh, but she, 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 she did such a good job, and she was probably one of the kindest people that you would run into, kind of in terms of her, like we'd say in California, her aura. She was just like a wonderful, warm person. And if you, if you mm. watch these interviews with her, she's just this extremely, like really nice person. You don't have to edit this in or out. So I would love her uh, as mm. a guest from Back from the Dead. And then hopefully she would live for another 200 years. Uh, a living guest, um, someone who I would just love to have a conversation with. I think, um, uh, so there's, I, I'm going to intellectual authors like, I mean, do I want to talk to Max Verstappen about racing cars? No. Uh, do I want to talk to, uh, I don't know. Obama or... Obama, yeah, Obama. I'm, I'm next to Obama in the Ask Me Anything on Reddit book. So that's as close as I'll ever get to Obama. That was my moment of fame, being on the page next to him. I mean, Obama is like such a amazing person. But um, I think that the in terms of people that I kind of just want to hear more from, it would be uh, Joseph Heinrich, the anthropologist who... Uh, uh, wrote The Secret of Our Success, and or James C. Scott, who wrote Seeing Like a State. Mm. I think both of the, uh, James C. Scott is, I think, I think, yeah, he's also an anthropologist. These anthropologists, man. So um, uh, James C. Scott also wrote Weapons, uh, Weapons, uh, Weapons of the Weak, uh, so forms of, of peasant resistance. And I think both of them are, are you know, super interesting thinkers uh, who have brought some really important insights to how humans interact uh, uh, and how they deal with power. That was weapons of the weak. Um, how the government misunderstands and, and tries to control things in an oversimplified way, uh, which is uh, uh, seen like a state. Hayek made the same point. I'm not sure I would want to talk to Hayek because he sounded like a bit of a hard ass, but uh, compared to Eleanor Ostrom, he's also obviously well dead. And then, um, and Joseph Heinrich has been, you know, doing this really good work on um, uh, cultural evolution. Uh, that was his uh, uh, the secrets of our success, but also his whole book, which I haven't read, uh, called Weird, uh, about Western, educated, intellectual, rich mm-hmm. democracies, um, and the way that they distort our understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Most academics working in the weird mm-hmm. kind of culture, therefore not understanding non-weird cultures. Um, you know, take for example, uh, you know. Uh, Bedouins in the desert kind of thing before oil um, and the way they think about culture I think is completely different anyway two um, uh, mm. amazing thinkers mm-hmm. okay I'll, I'll, I'll link to their uh, their books great uh, so my final question then because um Jive talking is coming to an end. So what? What? What's? What's next? What it's coming are... to an end in about three minutes. Yes. Uh, so tell us. <laughs> whenever what's, I shut what up. What's the next uh, on your agenda? Any exciting projects on the horizon? Um, 
None. None. I'm I'm continuing with so I'm putting I'll kind of say what I'm doing and what's continuing versus what I might be starting up. So I'm continuing with the the econ- one hand economist blog because I write it for myself. Uh, I'm continuing to uh, write uh, books that I release to the public. Uh, I have an idea uh, there about writing a book on data management, um, but that's not a new thing. I've been doing these books here and there. Um, Academically, there's, you know, I like my teaching and research publication is a really unfulfilling process. <laughs> Such a painful process. Uh, I think I'm turning more away from academic stuff. So, um, you know, doing woodworking, working on boats, sailing boats, like working with my hands. I'm very, very um, uh, happy to do that because it, it is nice to start with something which is, you know, uh, in such and such a shape and turn it into something which is a nicer shape and then you're done and it's great. Uh, you know, it's like painting a wall. The wall is dirty, paint the wall, the wall is clean. I like having these projects that you start and you succeed and you're done and uh, instead of projects that just go on forever. So I'm going more and more towards success and done compared to forever um, and that is probably part of my process of uh, moving away from uh, my academic career and into yeah, I guess a, a second career, something like that, mm. um, which is maybe for money, uh, but definitely for like day-to-day uh, value added and completion. Because mm. I think um, one of the things that's hardest, and this is actually when you end a podcast, like, why are you into the podcast? We love your podcast, I heard from four people. Uh, why don't you continue forever? I heard from people that, you know, it's not their time. So a lot of people say that. And I ended Agonomics after 10 years uh, and, you know, made a book out of it. I ended this after 250 episodes. I ended traveling for five years because, uh, you know, it was time. So mm. it was time. Mm. And uh, I don't know what's going to happen next. I think probably the best thing to say, it's very philosophical, I'm going to let the space open for something to enter mm. the space mm. and it'll develop. And, you know, maybe I'll, something will show, show up. So not having a plan is okay. That's the plan. Yeah. I think I think you'd make a pretty good activist. Have you thought about No, definitely not. No? Okay, no. that's a quick answer. No, because uh, activism is uh, uh, very uh, difficult because it's so hard for to organize the large against the small. Mm. And uh, I have made many efforts, like fail, 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 fail. I've tried, uh, you know, with corruption, with the rumor mill. I've tried, obviously, with, with climate change kinds of things and water for sure. I mean, arguing in, in the room with the people that are in charge of this stuff and they're just not interested mm. in deviating from something which is uh, socially irresponsible and privately profitable. And, uh, and, and, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and and I, I really applaud activists. I mean, I when Extinction Rebellion was was uh, more popular, it, it, their, their mission is completely needed as well. I, I didn't want to go, you know, glue my hands to the floor. I just gave them some money because uh, I, I think money also helps, but I, I, I have a real hard time seeing a cause effect connection with my participation, mm. um, which is, Probably selfish in a way, uh, but I, I have to be, in my mind, I have to be effective. Um, and I'm not as effective because of the way I think compared to other people that may think very differently, do exactly the same action and feel that they're more effective. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very much a, and I'm, I'm not saying this uh, from a, we shouldn't do anything about climate change. We shouldn't do anything about, you know, other of the many problems that we have in the world. It's just that, uh, Sometimes you've tried a lot, which, which, which I definitely have with water for 20 years. Um, and, and at some point you have to realize that um, you've done your part. You've put everything you can on the table. You've given away the books. You've gone to the conferences. You've you know, yelled at people, et cetera. You've done your best. And it, if it worked or it worked a little bit or it worked a lot, then you know, you've done your best. And I have done my best. And to continue to beat on that topic um, because... Uh, I must have some kind of measurable success, I think is, is um, valiant, but ultimately, uh, for me, uh, 
everyone, let's say it this way, everyone has their limit. Mm. And I've gone to my limit on a lot of things. Mm. Um, and some people have never tried anything. They don't bother. They just, you know, they go through the drive through at Starbucks. They get their triple latte uh, cappuccino frappa, whatever it is. Mm. And then they, you know, uh, uh, watch Netflix, whatever Netflix says they should watch. Like, they're not engaged at all in society. Other people are, like, dying for society, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, the, like the, these people that, 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 that kill themselves in protest kind of thing. So uh, somewhere in between those extremes mm-hmm. is everybody. Um, and, and I think it's, it's important to get involved in topics that concern you, um, that you feel imp- uh, compelled to get involved with. And it could be animal rights. It could be helping the neighbor's kids. It could be helping your own kids. It could be, uh, you know, going to get in shape or, or you know, what, I don't even know. Uh, but you, you should find something that you're interested in and, and that's rewarding to you and, and if everybody's doing that, as opposed to sitting mm-hmm. around on their couch getting fed, then the world would be better because mm-hmm. there are 8 billion people that could be activists in their own right. I think of those 8 billion people, I would say the activist population is far less than 1%. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a problem. Um, I'm, I was in that 1% uh, for quite some time. In some ways, I still am in that 1% because mm-hmm. I teach. I give away ideas uh, compared to like, you know, uh, learning and, and consuming ideas. Um, and I'm not claiming any kind of, uh, you know, superiority, but it's a hard place to be. If everybody was doing it though, it would be a much more fun place to be because mm. there's so many individual initiatives. It could be someone who, you know, plants flowers outside their house. Mm. It could be someone who, um, doesn't throw garbage on the street because I go around and pick up garbage in the street swearing at those people. It could be people that pick up the shit after their dogs. That's a really good way to be an activist yeah. to help society. Yeah, that's a nice uh, take on activism. Um, so are there any other things you want to add before we wrap up? I want to thank you for being my host through so many painful sessions. I said, Cornelia, you need to interview me. So thank you very mm. much. Yeah, and on behalf of all your past, current, and future listeners, uh, thank you for for uh, hosting the the podcast. And we're out.